When a sheep is like six to nine months old, if they get to a certain weight and they're particularly you know, fattened up for the spring, a farmer might go, oh, that's good, we'll just send them to slaughter for meat and we'll get their skin and that skin will have their first fresh wool and we'll get money from both of those two things. Or they'll go, they have really particularly good wool and we'll put you into the wool growing part and you can be shorn regularly for about five or six years and then we'll slaughter you then even though sheep can live to be like 10 or 12 years old. And at that point, they're either slaughtered at home in Australia, where most wool comes from, or they are sent on live export ships. Welcome back to another episode of the Plum Based News Podcast. This time, I'm thrilled to be joined by activist, author and consultant Emma Hackinson, whose work in the fashion industry has set the tone for ethical fashion, raising awareness around the deep-seated issues of the industry. Emma is the founding director of the ethical production company Willow Creative and not-for-profit collective fashion justice, working for a fashion industry that prioritises animals, people and the planet before profit. She was featured in and worked on Slay, a documentary which explores fashion's use of fur, leather and wool, featuring prominent thought leaders and experts across the fashion, design, sustainability and animal protection spaces. The film and the campaign around it has had huge impact, revealing the fashion industry's best-kept secrets surrounding greenwashing, animal exploitation and unjust treatment of workers. Previously, Emma has been involved in making a multi-award winning short film, Willow and Claude, which looks at solutions for the wool industry. Emma's writing, research and projects have been featured in The Guardian, Earth Island's journal, Vogue Business and Fashion Journal, to name a few. More recently, her book How Veganism Can Save Us was published in 2022. The book takes a wider look at veganism spanning across food, fashion and entertainment to reject the commodity status of animals. I'm always incredibly excited when I have the chance to talk to such multifaceted individuals such as Emma, and today we will delve deeper into the links between veganism, sustainability and fashion, raising awareness and exploring solutions to current inequalities for people, the planet and animals. I'm your host Robbie Lockie and this is the PBN Podcast. As always, if you like this episode, please don't forget to comment, like and share, and if you are an Apple Podcast, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the PBN Podcast, Emma. Great to finally sit down with you and, uh, yeah, hear your story. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Nice to meet you after yes. years. Yes, I know. We've been following each other and connecting over vegan and animal rights issues for, wow, quite a few years now. I can't even remember. I've lost count. Yeah, maybe it, like 2017. Yeah, yeah. It's been a, quite a ride. A lot of things have gone on. Um, so many amazing campaigns and projects and I'm really excited to dive into all the cool things that you've been doing. I've always loved fashion. It's a way of expression, an art form that allows for identity development and pride, even for evolution. We all wear clothes. We all say something to the world in what we choose to clothe ourselves in. I came to appreciate fashion more deeply working as a model. But I also became more conscious of the fast pace of fashion, of the hidden costs behind our clothes. I became increasingly uncomfortable promoting it all. Fast fashion, thoughtless fashion, unjust fashion. So I decided to shift paths. I began working only with ethical brands to produce photo shoots while helping others make kinder choices. At the same time, I began fostering orphaned lambs, those who had come from the meat and wool industries. This is how Willow and Claude came into my life. They are how I decided to look more deeply into the knitwear we keep warm with in winter. 
After so many nights of bottle feeding little lambs, after so many cuddles, I wanted to combine my passion for fairly made clothes with something I could do for them, or for those like them. This episode is kindly supported by Zenbi. As someone who doesn't eat gluten, I've often found it difficult to find pastas that match the taste and texture of wheat originals. But Zenbi has been an absolute game changer. Their pastas are actually made from yellow peas, which are incredibly high in fiber, protein, and of course, completely plant-based. Zenbi is the best gluten-free pasta I've actually ever tried, and it's become a staple in my kitchen cupboard. But honestly, don't take my word for it. Try it for yourself today. Check out this website, zenbi.co.uk, and use discount code PBN40 to get 40% off your first order. Let's go back in time. Mm -hmm. And as always, uh, I'd like to ask my guests this one question, which is, how did you find veganism, or how did it find you? What was your vegan story? Mine was a story in two stages. So first I stopped eating land-dwelling animals and then later I learnt more and went vegan. But that first part was the bigger realisation for me. I was living with my family in Sweden, I'm half Swedish, and I was being fed a lot of moose and a lot of deer because that's just what is culturally normal in Sweden. And I felt kind of uncomfortable with it and I didn't want to be rude, but I also, it just didn't sit right with me. And after sitting with that for a bit, I realised that if I was going to be uncomfortable with it, it only made sense that I also be uncomfortable with eating cows, eating chickens, eating, you know, other animals. And so that was the realisation where I was loving animals inconsistently. And then it was about a year later that I met someone who was vegan. I was pescatarian at the time, just kind of ignored that fish were sentient. And I was asked why I was an animal lover who was still selectively deciding who I was going to care about. And I just had never thought about the dairy industry or the egg industry or the wool industry. So after someone kind of just pointed that out to me, I went the whole way. But that moose realisation was the big one for me. So the last animal I ever ate was a moose. And I felt really ill because by that point I'd really decided it wasn't something I wanted to be participating Mm. in. Where were you born? London, actually. Oh, you were born in London. Oh, wow. Okay. Surprise. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. Um, but the culture that you spent the most time in is, is uh, Australia, right? Yes. And, and and the culture there is very, very meat-heavy, that eating animals is just a, such a deep part of the culture. Have you seen a change in the country, and have you seen things shifting towards a more plant-based or vegan culture, or do you think there's a very, very long way to go still? Both. There's still right. a very long way to go, but there's also been a lot of change. So I was first vegan at 16 I'm 23 now and just the range of products which you know products isn't the end all be all of animal liberation obviously but what is available to eat is a huge difference and there's just more kind of general understanding of what being vegan is why people think it's something important to do and even you know we have facilities that create plant-based meat products in Australia now we didn't used to have that we have more legislation that is more animal friendly. We have politicians from the Animal Justice Party now, more of them. So there's definitely been really positive changes. Animal agriculture is incredibly powerful in Australia. They have their fingers in many pies, including the media. Mm. Um, I think is it Channel 7 is particularly good at creating hit pieces against vegans. And some of the laws almost protect the animal agriculture industry from showing, well, from letting activists show the truth 
about what happens behind closed doors. They're meat-free, but researchers have found many vegan products are packed with salt to improve the taste. The Heart Foundation says some have as much as half the recommended daily intake of salt in just one serve. That's putting Australians at greater risk of heart attacks, kidney disease and stroke. A farmer in Queensland. Get off my country! Powerless, as close to 150 vegan activists stormed his property. But David, this looks familiar. This is where they came through the fence? This is exactly where they've come through. Two barbed wire fences. This is an invasion. It, it was an invasion. Did they have weapons for a start? Are they militant? They're running at me. How does it feel to sort of, you know, be living under those kinds of conditions? Because it, it can be overwhelming. But I mean, have you have you experienced anything like that in your time as an activist? Have you had come up against issues with the law? So in Australia, we have quite strict ag laws, agricultural gag laws. And it means that it's technically illegal for anyone to not only capture footage on farms and in slaughterhouses, but to share it. So even if a news company or, you know, a TV outlet shares footage that an activist has got, it's technically illegal for them to have done that. It's illegal for someone to share it on Facebook. People still do it anyway, but that's how strong the laws are in Australia. And that's because of a lot of lobbying from the industry. So it makes it harder to campaign, to get media outreach, to be effective in getting that kind of footage, that kind of message out there. People still do it, but it makes it much more complicated And even since the first kind of campaign I worked on compared to now, the amount of press that you'd get is much less now because it's much more difficult. Because people are afraid of the legal consequences of supporting that kind of message. Yeah. It's shocking, isn't it? Do you ever see it changing? Is there any hope for things to change? I think that it could. A friend of mine, Chris Delfos, actually just took this issue to the high court. The director of Dominion. Yes, the director of Dominion and who's behind Farm Transparency Project. He went to the High Court to try to challenge those agricultural gag laws and unfortunately he lost but one of the people who was behind the decision who did vote in favour of Chris's argument said, you know, really positive things about the fact that these kind of laws are eroding democracy and our right to, you know, know things that are in the public interest. So I think that that shows that things will change. We've also just got rid of a conservative government that really doesn't care about animals at all. So (laughs) progress. It does fill me with rage at times when I think about how some of these politicians are so ambivalent to the suffering of animals because it's all about economies, it's all about money, it's all about control. Animal agriculture has so much power in this world and it can be overwhelming for a lot of people. A lot of people feel powerless standing in front of this machine, this big human animal environment munching machine which is kind of like the capitalist monster but we're so much up against us as activists you know how do we avoid becoming depressed and miserable all the time how do we keep getting out of bed every morning and doing the work because you know the world really needs it but it it does require some amount of strength so how do you do it like how do you keep moving forward i think having a community of people is a hugely important thing even if it's not people i'm working directly with because they're doing their own things in the space it's just nice to know that none of us are alone in this fight and so it's helpful to really have a sense of that and i think too it's just that you do it anyway like when it does feel a little bit hopeless it's like 
if I don't do anything, then it definitely is hopeless and there's definitely no chance of me making a difference. If I do something, yeah, I'm up against a huge battle, but there's that tiny chance. And so you just have to work to make that tiny chance less tiny, I think. Absolutely. There's a, an old story about a man walking, it was one of my favorite stories um, about animals, about a man walking across a beach I love uh, this with one. a starfish and he's walking with a friend. I don't know who told this story, but I love it. And he's walking along and he's throwing the starfish back into the ocean. His friend's like, what are you doing? Uh, why do you bother? And he's, it's not making any difference. And he picked up another starfish and said this to this one mm. and this one and this one. And, you know, our mission and our work as individuals, it's a collective mission. You may be working in your space, I'll be working in mine, but there are thousands of people, hopefully millions of people across the world who do care and are trying to shift the consciousness of our species in the direction of a a more compassionate society. It's an evolution of our species. I genuinely believe that veganism is a philosophy, which isn't just about what we eat or how we buy it as a mindset. It's the way we see the world, mm. the way we see animals and, you know, insects and birds and even the natural world of, of any sort, the trees, the rivers. It's about learning that it's precious and that we must protect it and we must work hard to preserve it because who knows if there is another earth like this in the entire cosmos. We have no idea. Mm. We hope there is. Mm. We hope that there are loads of like life giving planets filled with trees and animals and insects and birds. But what if there isn't? Mm. It's a terrifying thought that what if Earth is such a beautiful, priceless, one of a kind? It's a possibility that that Earth is unique, but it's also a possibility that there's more out there. But we just don't know. And so if we don't know, we should really work hard to protect what we have. And even if there are other planets out there, Mm. I think, you know, that doesn't negate the fact that what we have here is precious. Absolutely. Yeah. I always, when I was a kid, I used to lie on the, I grew up in Zimbabwe in mm. Africa and I used to lie on the grass, look up at the Milky Way where I lived. There's no light pollution. So you could see beautiful. this beautiful, majestic, it's a bit, it's, a, it's the reason they call it the Milky Way because it looks like there's milk, soy milk <laughs> sprayed across the sky with a trillion dots. And I always wonder, you know, what was out there and, and, you know, if humans would ever leave the earth. But that's a that's a conversation for another time. Let's not get sidetracked by space, the, by the magic <laughs> of space, because my, my mind does tend to go there. I'm, I'm obsessed with cats and space. It's my two favorite, two, one of my two favorite subjects. One of your missions and one of your goals is total liberation for all. Big goal. Big goal. A lot of <laughs> activists talk about total liberation. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to hear in your words, what does total liberation actually mean and, and how do we move more towards towards it? Yeah, I talk about total or collective liberation because I think that, and I'm like you said, I'm not the first person to think this, we can't actually achieve any kind of liberation for one specific group by themselves because we're all connected so if we try to work exclusively for non-human animal liberation for example we're not going to be able to effectively do that if we don't recognize that human liberation the liberation of the planet they're all connected the same way if you look at even just like a leather supply chain because fashion is what I talk about a lot then we're talking about cows being exploited indigenous land rights issues deforestation emissions slaughterhouse workers tannery workers farm workers there's so much exploitation and if you try to unpick one part and then just leave the rest it doesn't work you have to see that it's all connected and i think that's why for me a really big part of advocacy that i think is important is recognizing that humans are animals because if we do that 
we can stop seeing ourselves as above mm. other animals or why, somehow why different. Why do you think that is? Why do you think humans seem to see them? Because we are a species of great ape, Homo sapiens sapiens. Yes. Yet so many of our species think that we are above animals in some way. Why do you think that is? It's something that I talk about in my book, which I know I'm spoiler. <laughs> but that's it's coming. coming. But we deem those who we want to oppress as subhuman mm. and then that's how we're able to justify oppressing them. It's a power structure. Yeah. People mm. animalize others and, you know, people talk about they're treating that person like they're an animal as though then it's justified because at the moment we justify animals being treated badly. So it's a way that we structure things. And at the moment, being like a white, cis, able-bodied man is the furthest you can get from being an animal and everyone else kind of falls down the ladder below that. And then non-human animals are at the bottom. So if we can get rid of that hierarchy and just recognise that we're all different animals with different capabilities. Of course, we're not all exactly the same, but we're all the same in the ways that matter in how we're treated, sentient, thinking, feeling. I think a lot of that gets sorted over time. I 100% agree. We're all we're the same in all the ways that matter. It's one of my favorite expressions because it's something that a lot of people don't think about. So mm. when people talk about insects, for example, insects are not really at the forefront of people's minds when it comes to protecting life on this planet. But if the insects all vanished and all the bees all vanished and all the pollinators disappeared, humanity would be in huge peril. In fact, we are heading in that direction. A lot of the pollinators are disappearing because the vast quantities of pesticides, herbicides, fungicides that are being put out into the agricultural lands. You know, take bees, for example. They are so important, especially wild honeybees. You know, they're an important part of many, many ecosystems. But yet, because they're small, because they don't live very long, people don't see them as important. And I'm in your mindset that we have to teach people, including specifically children, the importance and and the, the magic of nature, that it is this beautiful machine that is kind of ever turning, but it does require a maintenance and support. And I, I genuinely believe that human beings should be more like custodians of this beautiful garden that we live in rather than rather than what feels like bulldozers you know yeah we have become this is something that does offend some people but i do believe in it that i think that humans homo sapiens sapiens our species has become an invasive parasitic species i think it also depends on i think different people live differently mm. and you know there are indigenous cultures that aren't so parasitic capitalistic and yeah just driven by constant extraction that kind of thing but don't you think that our our culture specifically the western culture yes is is parasitic because by nature a parasite is something that destroys it kills it doesn't give back it's very destructive but it you know the difference between us and parasites is that we have the power and the knowledge and the skill to become symbionts i think also often we think that we're giving up something mm. by living in more alignment with the planet and other animals right. like oh Sacrifice. i'm giving up buying these wool sweaters i'm giving up eating this meat that kind of thing but we're actually giving ourselves a chance to live on a more beautiful planet to have healthier lives and to it's like you give up that thing that you want to eat or wear or you give up the life of the planet and one of those is probably more important oh it's so it's so true like i think people's people are again going back to capitalism and sorry to heart, labor the point but the capitalist system is about buying more being more having more right you know that let's talk about fashion because fashion is a big part of that it's a it's a big multi 
trillion dollar business mm. globally that is all about predominantly all about encouraging people in in then in their billions really to buy and consume and the fast fashion industry and the um, animal agriculture industry, which are obviously all in bed together because of the, pro- the animal products that exist in the system. But I'd love to hear a bit about that and your experience of it, because firstly, you know, how did you get involved in the fashion world? But t- and then tell us a little bit about what are some of the animal products that are used in fashion and how they, if you want to touch lightly on how each of them really have an eff- such a horrific effect on animals and of course people as well. So I first was involved in fashion as a model. I started modeling when I was like 14, so I didn't have really any moral stand standing point at that point but I then stopped eating animals became vegan and at the same time I also was learning more about the human rights issues in fashion so suddenly I realized that I was going to my job and I was putting on dead animals skins and those skins had been sewn together by people who were exploited too and the planet was being harmed by it and I didn't want to make my money that way anymore so there were you know different steps along the way but now I've ended up where fashion advocacy is a huge part of what I do. If we're talking about different materials, people know a lot about fur, but we still need to talk about it because it still exists and is still worn often by people who don't realise now. But we also have leather. The main thing I hear about leather is that it's a byproduct, and so we should just wear it so it doesn't get sent to landfill. Leather is a really valuable co-product. Slaughterhouses profit every time skins sell. And so buying leather is buying into a system that exploits and kills cows, that is responsible for a huge amount of emissions and that is eating up the world because rearing cattle for production, for slaughter, for use is hugely land inefficient and means that we're losing all of this biodiversity. So leather's a huge one. Wool is another one that is talked about a bit less. It's very hidden, it seems. It's always seen as this natural fiber right yeah and just happy sheep getting a haircut wandering mm. around whatever mm. the wool industry is a slaughter industry people are less aware of that because it's not directly a product of slaughter in that it's not a skin that you see but sheep are bred they are bred in a way that is profit driven so there's selective breeding and issues that mean that a lot of lambs die at that point and then after they're mutilated you know tail docked castrated mules sometimes Mulesing is a horrific. Do you want to just yes. mention a little bit? So, just a trigger warning. It's a pretty graphic. Mulesing is essentially around the backside of the lamb. They cut the skin off with really sharp. They're not called scissors. They're called shears, but like scissors. And the animal bleeds a lot, right? Yes. We had an investigation out with new footage of that, and it's really awful. And it's done because fly strike is a disease where basically flies like lay their eggs in the skin folds of sheep. But these skin folds only exist because we have bred sheep for so long to have more skin in hopes that they'll have more wool to profit from. So we've created this issue ourselves. But even if you buy non-mulesed wool, those animals are still tail docked. Their tails just cut off often with basically like hot hair straightener kind of looking tool. No anesthetic. No, Mm. not by law. And then... When a sheep is like six to nine months old, even if they're a merino sheep that's like, you know, the wool sheep, if they get to a certain weight and they're particularly, you know, fattened up for the spring, a farmer might go, oh, that's good, we'll just send them to slaughter for meat and we'll get their skin and that skin will have their first fresh wool and we'll get money from both of those two things. Or they'll go, they have really particularly good wool and we'll put you into the wool growing part. And you can be shorn regularly for about five or six years and then we'll slaughter you then. 
even though sheep can live to be like 10 or 12 years old. And at that point, they're either slaughtered at home in Australia, where most wool comes from, or they are sent on live export ships. And that's the same pretty much across the entire world. So it's very different from the messaging that the wool industry puts out. And whether you're talking about cashmere, alpaca wool, duck down, like all of these systems are slaughter systems. I decided to bring more options into the world that kept sheep like Willow and Claude safe. I decided I would make my own knitwear as ethically as I possibly could. I'd also use it to support more projects for good. My first thoughts were on the raw material. If it wasn't wool, then what else was out there? I found a lot of alternative fibres made of synthetic materials, acrylic, polyester. They're produced from fossil fuels and millions of tiny microplastics are released and head into our waterways every time we wash them. They're far from nature's pick. So I knew I wanted to make knitwear out of plants. That way, anything I made would quickly biodegrade without polluting the earth. But I didn't know what plant was most ethical or sustainable. I looked at hemp, bamboo, organic cotton. I read about horrific human rights violations on some overseas fibre farms. Forced labour, child labour, misleading labelling and false certifications of supposedly organic fibres. That was when it dawned on me. It makes the most sense to support Australian farmers. They're right here, battling drought, bushfires and floods, growing the crops to feed and clothe us. I'd save carbon emissions sourcing fibre from home, and best of all, I'd be able to learn everything about the ethics and sustainability of the farm. I'd be able to go and see it for myself. So after months of research, I decided that I was going to work with Australian plant farmers, more specifically, cotton farmers. But despite the theoretical knowledge I'd gathered, I didn't know just how much work goes into growing the cotton in my underwear, my jeans, or my t-shirt. Cruelty aside, which is obviously a big part of the conversation, most people are completely unaware of the environmental impact of these industries. The toxic chemicals used in, in leather, the vast amounts of land cleared for farming sheep. Do you want to touch a bit about touch on a little bit about that? Because obviously that's a big, big one for a lot of people. There are a lot of people who love and care about animals, but there are some people who are you know oblivious to it and they, they don't really care. But the environmental message does get through to them. And I think that's an interesting thing too, to care about the environment. Like if we talk about biodiversity loss, which is a huge thing across all grazing animals, whether you're talking about goats raised for cashmere, alpaca for wool, sheep for wool, cows for leather, all of those. Biodiversity destruction is a huge issue and that also means species endangerment and all of the wild animals that we lose there too. Animal-derived materials, they're just inefficient to produce. We need so much land for them. They have to be processed a lot. So wool, again, we think of as so natural. If you compare it to how cotton is processed, cotton is pretty ready to wear kind of from the get-go. And there are more and less sustainable ways to produce cotton, of course. Like you want organic rain-fed, for example. But you really just like spin the fiber out and then you wear it. Wool needs to be scoured in this process where different chemical baths are used so that the wool doesn't have the grease that is basically like sheep. It's not sweat, but it comes out through their skin. Mm -hmm. And that process is so inefficient. Is that the lanolin? It's lanolin. Right, which is used in vitamin D supplements, non-vegan vitamin D supplements. Yeah. Which is gross. (laughs) Yeah. And... 
that whole system, like a wool scouring facility, some of the most common detergents used in those include substances like APEOs and they are so toxic that when they go into waterways, because most of the water isn't processed properly, when they inevitably go into waterways, they feminize all of the fish and so then the fish populations dwindles kind of ruined because yeah. they can't breed anymore. So there's heaps of aspects to the industry that people really don't talk about because they just focus on, ironically, the rolling green hills that are being depleted and that are a green hill sterile. full of sheep is not a natural environment. No, it's not. There's it's a not, sterile environment. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah, honestly, sometimes when you get into these the the weeds of this stuff, it can it can be incredibly overwhelming. But thankfully, there are people like you in this world, Emma, who are fighting against these negative um, negative is, is not even a big enough word. These <laughs> monstrous <laughs> industries. Tell us about Collective Fashion Justice. Um, it's your organisation. Yes, Collective Fashion Justice is a not for profit, and it exists to create what I call a total ethics fashion system. So a fashion industry that puts the well-being and life of all animals, humans and non-humans, as well as the planet that we share before profit. That's really far away from the fashion industry that we have today. And we focus on all three because, like I said, you can't address one without the other. We focus mostly on degrowth in the fashion industry because everyone needs to talk about it. We consume too much. But then really on animal-derived materials because that's where people, animals and planet are consistently harmed. It's just the most effective way to create the broadest, most impactful change. Do you work with organisations and challenge organisations out there for their behaviour? Yeah, so we work across citizen consumer education so that people understand what's going on. We consult with brands and help brands that want to change, but we also push hard on the ones that don't particularly want to change but need to. And we also work at a legislative level, working with politicians, trying to have change that impacts everyone, you know, trying to get fur bans, things like that. And so it means that we have done lots of reports, we've had short films, we've had involvement with like the Drop Croc campaign that Kindness Project and Farm Transparency again are involved with. So there's lots of different ways that we create change, but ultimately our work has meant that we're seeing brands move away from animal materials, move towards more sustainable materials and see, you know, we're seeing more cultural change. People actually understanding that animal skins aren't materials and they're not these sustainable, renewable resources that they're made out to be. That's something actually the fashion industry talks a lot about leather and wool as renewable resources because they're natural. And that really irks me because... Which is greenwashing, right? Yeah, but also it's ethics washing. An animal is not a renewable resource. When you slaughter that animal, that animal is dead. They're right. not coming back. Yeah. Yes, Where, you can... Those plants are renewable. Yeah, like you infinitely. can breed another sheep, but that sheep has lost their life. So I think that kind of language is very purposely deceptive. Yeah, green. I'd love to talk a little, little on greenwashing and ethics washing is a new one for me. There's a lot of washing going on. <laughs> washing of the truth, mainly. <laughs> These industries are so powerful. They have so much money. Mm. Um, do you ever feel intimidated by them? Because obviously, you know, there it's a sort of, is it Samson and Goliath? Samson yeah. and Goliath? I, yeah, yeah, yeah. David and Goliath. David and Goliath. I always get that one wrong. <laughs> Who's Samson? Samson and Delilah. <laughs> Samson and Delilah. <laughs> Different story. <laughs> David and Goliath. You know, it's a David and Goliath situation. These mega, I, I often refer to it as the monolith. And actually... You know, I was reading about the pillars, uh, you know, environmental, humanitarian, anti-speciesist 
And I often talk about the monolith, but um, uh, a monolith is held up by pillars. Yeah. And the only way to bring down a monolith is to attack the pillars. Yeah, and to, to be able to attack the pillars, you have to get inside the pillars, a bit like a Trojan horse. How do we dismantle these organizations? Because obviously they're so powerful, they have so much money, they have so much support. You know, do you have any theories on like what's the best way for us to, and it's, it might take a couple of lifetimes to do this possibly, and you may need to impart your knowledge onto other younger activists you know, behind you. But how do we dismantle these organizations in, in the current form? Before I get into my ideas on it, just the way you talked about the pillars, Jake Conroy, the cranky vegan, has a really great video. It's a video of different pillars holding up a building and how you chip down different ones with pressure campaigning. So it's really interesting to watch. But I think that it's really important. That's why I talk about like consumer education, brands and legislation, because they I don't think you can affect change unless you're addressing all of them at once. I think if you just focus on one right. pillar, it and doesn't work. And we can't work. do that alone, right? This is why we have a movement. Yes, mm. and different people do different things. And I think it's really important. I have a friend, Harley, who recently talked about having like a healthy ecosystem for an activist movement where different people are doing different things and some people might think some things are more effective than others and we need to be critical about what's most effective. But the fact that different people are trying different things means that we're going to find success in different right. points. So... I think that, I don't know, I'm getting to saying I think everything needs to be tried, but we work really hard in fashion particularly to focus in some ways on luxury fashion because for anyone who's seen The Devil Wears Prada, it all trickles down from luxury. Everything comes down from there. So if you change that, everything else inevitably changes. But at the same time, if you get grassroots activists really involved, that change comes from them upwards. So I think both directions at once. Do you ever feel, though, that there's not enough cohesion between the community across the, across the world? There's, there, you know, in the seven, eight years I've been doing this, I've experienced a lot of ego, a lot of competition, mm. a lot of glorification of individuals, kind of cult of personality type scenarios mm. where activists in, of a particular sort, and I'm sure you can imagine the sort, right? We don't even need to say, <laughs> rise to the, in quotes, top particularly on social media, and they become glorified and deified in many ways and get a lot of attention. And you just begin to see their egos getting bigger and bigger and they they get so much adoration, not so much for the work that they're doing, but for their identity. And I sometimes feel like some activists perhaps lose sight of the actual cause itself because it should never be about us. And this is why at PBN, it's never been about Klaus and I. We are not like the faces of this organization we want to create a powerful media organization for good and we want it to outlive us. We want people to continue to, to spread the yeah. message and use the, the media machine because I think as soon as you make it about yourself, like if you ever fall from glory or you ever step out of line, your organization is done. toast. Yeah, That's another conversation. But the point is, is that, you know, we need to stick together and there is a lot of infighting in the vegan community and that's nothing to do with being vegan. That's human beings, right? Yeah. People... When they get together in large groups, struggle to get along because they're yeah. all different with different backgrounds. And humans haven't been able to engage with as many people as we do now right, ever exactly. before in history. Like yeah. it's new territory. But how do we keep ourselves together with and, and, and keep the sort of community strong? You know, do we need more big events, bringing people together? What are some of the ways you think that we should be bringing people together to sort of try and keep, as you say, attacking these pillars because we, we need to keep at it? I think that educating people around the value of collective liberation is a really important part of that 
because when we do that, I think we also are able to see more the similarities between us than the differences. And it means that, you know, people often feel funny when I have done interviews with slaughterhouse workers and engaged with people like that who might be seen as like the opposition for this work but those are the kinds of people who we need to be building bridges with and a lot of those people you know desperately don't want to be doing that work no one chooses to be a slaughterhouse worker because they just think it sounds like the best job ever slaughterhouse workers are much more likely to have perpetration induced traumatic stress disorder and that kind of thing I think if we focus on alliance building where it doesn't necessarily seem immediately obvious that's a really important way of doing it and that's how we build a stronger movement where we have people in the industry saying I want to just transition away from this as well as people outside of it saying I want this and then we have you know people who are more focused on the environment advocating for that part of the same issue people who are really passionate about animals but it's all on the same industry and then we suddenly have a much 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 bigger movement than we did before I think that's a really important part of it. I'm a big fan of events of bringing people together. Um, in October, between the 19th and 24th, there's the Animal and Vegan Advocacy Summit. There's going to be a thousand people there wow. learning how to be effective vegan advocates. And there'll be um, speakers and teachers from all around the world coming to talk about effective vegan advocacy. Because I think it's a, it's a big part of the problem for me, which is it's all down to, not all, but a lot of it is down to communication. How yeah. people talk to each other, how people disagree, mm. how people find common ground. Moving on to something else, which I absolutely loved, is your short film, Willow and Claude, about rescued sheep. Tell me about this and uh, tell us about how you know, it's won some awards and yeah, tell us a bit more. So Willow and Claude are both little lambs who were rescued from the wool and meat industries and I fostered them until they were old enough to live at a sanctuary and be happy sheep for the rest of their lives. They're still there. They're both maybe, I can't count, five years old now. Teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so yeah, they're at the point now that if they'd been kept for wool growing, they'd be about to be slaughtered. It's interesting thinking about that, I think. But the film looks at how I got to know them and then through them got to know why wool is not something I wanted to wear anymore. But because I'm interested in fashion, it was then, so what can I be wearing instead? And what can designers be working with instead? So it looks at, you know, why plastic materials aren't the solution either. What else do we need to right. be considering? Because a lot of alternatives, well, uh, yeah, vegan uh, alternatives have PET, PEP. PET PET underneath and like acrylic nylon those kinds of things for wool alternatives so then the film follows like a proof of concept supply chain that's completely in Australia I go to the cotton farm of this woman Renee who's worked really hard to make a particularly sustainable farm that does rotational cropping with different legumes that put more nitrogen into the soil and the whole supply chain is transparent and then there's this beautiful knitwear that literally no one has been harmed by and so it's just a nice way to show like this is even though it's more complicated, this should be the bare minimum for the fashion industry. You should have to design the supply chain of a product as carefully as you do the final product. So it's won a design award, which is cool. And the judging panel said, you know, that it showed that total ethics fashion is not only a possibility, but something that's desirable. And that's really important for an industry that is so driven by aesthetics. And it's a nice way also to bring something that is often seen as like terrorism, really intense animal rescue is seen as such a controversial thing and now these two little lambs have been shown in places where that kind of messaging would previously not be particularly accepted but because people just get to see how you know gorgeous they are, mm, they are suddenly they're all right with it. <laughs> yeah. 
the, uh, the cognitive dissonance that goes on, but we'll, we'll touch on that later. But um, I'm interested in the whole fashion industry that we've, someone, I think it was you who said, someone at the, we'll talk about Slay in a bit, but someone said, you know, if you're wearing clothes, you are, that was an insulate. It's in the film. Yeah, if you're Some wearing matter. clothes, yeah. you are involved in fashion because that's the fashion industry, right? It doesn't have to be high fashion. But, you know, in modern times, we've got so used to, most people got so used to buying super, super cheap clothes for next to nothing, often at incredibly low quality, but much more affordable. Mm. But we also have these messages rolling around in our heads on TV and on billboards talking about the importance of sustainable fashion, which has become a real buzzword. But yet when you go to try and, you know, if you go to the internet and search for sustainable fashion, often the products that you find are a hundred times more expensive than what you might find in, in, you know, Primark. You know, how do we make sustainable fashion more accessible and more affordable? You know, what are some of the changes and mindset shifts perhaps that need to happen? I think the first is for us to understand the real value of clothing. If we're buying a jumper that is 20 I'm going to say dollars, but I should be saying pounds, 10 pounds, then we haven't paid for it, but someone else has paid that cost. The person who made it has paid that cost because they were paid a poverty wage that doesn't, you know, help them live properly. The environment has paid for it because it's being destroyed and animals have paid for it because they're being harmed. So sustainable and ethical fashion should be more expensive because it actually just means that we are paying what something costs. But at the same time, you know, there are people who are doing like $200 boohoo hauls and getting heaps and heaps of clothes. If we change our mindset to buying less but buying better, then we can afford to buy less but of a higher quality. That's not true for everyone. Some people, Should you know, expensive stuff last longer? Is that... Is, is it, it definitely should. It should be made better. It should be made of more durable materials. But we also need to get into the idea of repairing our clothes and seeing them as like heirlooms that you pass on to if you have a kid you know it goes to them it's not something that's disposable right but the capitalist monster doesn't like that no like today (laughs) every second around the world a truck full of textiles is sent to landfill that's how many clothes we're buying that is not sustainable and it's a tsunami of it's 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 absurd So a lot of people can afford to buy more sustainable clothes if they just buy less. For the people who can't, then it's more about being mindful and then also realising that, you know, everyone can afford to repair their clothes. Everyone can afford to buy pre-loved clothes. And those are things that people, yeah, people who have less money have been living more sustainably for ages because it's more affordable. So I think we kind of have to tap back into that mindset that, being sustainable is not like a cheap way to do things. It's a much better way and it's a way that we have a more wealthy environment. One of the sort of uh, things that, that are criticised about alternative fashion materials is their durability. It comes at people regularly that, oh, well, you know, leather is more durable or vegan plant-based alternatives don't last long. So... If I buy these, uh, I may have to end up replacing them soon because they, they won't last. Is that, a, is that a valid claim? People often make comparisons that are not particularly fair. They might compare like a $200 pair of leather shoes with fast fashion synthetic shoes. The difference in durability there is probably more going to be about the way that they were made and stitched together. That's a hugely important part of whether or not a product is durable rather than the material. That being said, there's also 
there's higher and lower quality versions of both animal materials and alternatives to them. So there are cheaper synthetic leathers that are less sustainable and there are alternatives to leather that are much more sustainable and durable that have far lower environmental impacts. And so those ones are better ones to pick. Cowskin leather also, people try to have it both ways. You know, people will say it's a natural material and it's biodegradable, but then they'll also say, but it will last years and years and years perfectly. That doesn't work. The reason that leather is leather rather than skin is because of the tanning process which exists specifically to make an organic material which is skin into something inorganic that is no longer biodegradable that won't rot on our feet it's and that will last design, for ages right yeah. yeah so it lasts a long time because of that process that's really harmful and there are other ways to make things durable so this is touched on in the new documentary, credible documentary by Rebecca Capelli, uh, Slay, which is available to watch on Waterbear, uh, waterbear.com for free. Go, go and download the app. It's amazing. Um, and there's loads of incredible life-changing documentaries on there. And so Slay explores the interwoven harms caused by fashion's use of fur, leather and wool. Fashion is such a brilliant tool for communication and expression. But I think because of those really lovely aspects, the social and environmental impacts have maybe been slightly overlooked. My name is Rebecca, and I grew up in the fashion capital of the world, Paris. I love shopping, but I also want to know, what am I really paying for? We have to take what we're putting on our bodies every day slightly seriously. Animals disappear into fashion objects in a way that's very troubling and in a way that's intentionally hidden. It's a, a form of moral insanity that we justify this behavior in, in any kind of way. No one wants to talk about the animals used for shoes, bags and clothing. We're in this system that has normalized cruelty on a massive scale. Fashion brands are selling a dream, and they don't want us to see the reality, but I have to find out what's really going on. You feature in this film. I'd love to hear about your experience being involved in the film and your sort of take on it. I was really grateful to be involved with the film. I love Rebecca, seeing her in Paris soon. And I am in the film in the wool section. I was also the line producer for the section on wool, and I did a lot of the research alongside Rebecca for the film across the board and I'm over here this side in the, of the world to promote the film and to engage with brands and talk to them after they've seen the film to say okay now that you've learned about this how can we change what you're doing I should mention too it's not a super graphic film it's not something that people should feel I can't stomach watching yeah. it it's emotive but it's not graphic yeah yeah it's really encouraging of people to consider their next choice one of the scenes that everyone has said has been something that they have you know taken with them is Rebecca sitting on the floor surrounded by all of her old clothes that's like you know calf skin goat skin fur all of these different things and just saying you know that a spell has been broken she's seeing it differently now because she just sees them as all these dead animals and so it's not about looking back on your past decisions and hating yourself for it, it's like now that you have this information, what are you going to do with it? And so I think the film is a really powerful way to make people think about fashion and also to activate them not just to buy differently but to get involved. So we have 
different actions that people can take after the film and we're really encouraging people to get involved with collective fashion justice because feeling hopeless is what these industries want from us. We have power, especially if we're working together, to make really substantial change in the fashion industry and more broadly. One thing I also, um, and I, I asked this at the um, Slay premiere, uh, was about um, alternative fashion materials that look like their predecessor. Yes. Fashion upgrades, let's call them perhaps, you know, vegan leathers and vegan fur particularly, and even probably vegan wool. You know, um, I've got a jacket that looks like it's got wool on the inside, but it's, it's made from cotton. Do you ever feel concerned that by wearing fashion materials that look like leather or fur or wool to the average eye they would assume that they were leather wool or fur that we are continuing to perpetuate this idea that wearing animal-like substances or materials on our bodies it's fashionable it's desirable mm. um, it's an open question like I myself have things that look like that as I said but do you feel like ever that particularly fur because obviously fur is just very heavily associated with opulence mm. upward mobility power money do you ever feel like by wearing these alternatives that look so realistic that we are continuing this idea that animals you know it, to wear animals is fine it's, mm. it's normal I think that which is similar to what I said on the night that the value of having these alternatives outweighs any potential harm of someone going, oh, that person's wearing leather. Because if we went out and said, oh, you can't wear leather anymore, you can't wear fur anymore, and instead you can only wear cotton canvas, mm -hmm. hessian bags, whatever, <laughs> it's not going to happen. The fashion industry is going to look at it and go, all right, right, that's not for me. Yeah. So having alternatives is such a beautiful way to be like, you're not compromising anything, you're not losing anything, you're just making a better choice. And it's also nice to be able to say, you know, literally everywhere I go, someone will try to pick something in my outfit and go, oh, I've got you there, what are right. you wearing? Mm -hmm. And I like being able to go, actually, this collar is made from a partly cactus-derived leather alternative. It's a great talking point, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and then I can talk about it and then people, I like getting dressed nicely and I like when people recognize that and then go oh so I can still dress the way I want to dress and not contribute to any of that harm and I think that's a valuable message to be able to put out I think so definitely so please go and watch Slay it's very powerful yes I loved it this is an industry that don't want society to understand what they do they don't want their secrets shared with the wider public of course they know what they are doing it's part of the business to have a very weak traceability I think that it will make it a lot harder for people to support these products, knowing where they came from. Let Us Be Heroes. She published that film on PBN uh, a couple of years ago, and it was uh, amazing. It was her first film, and she yeah. just sailed through the production of that and was so good at it. Um, she's a natural filmmaker. She's so watchable on, on the film as well. Like mm. Her kind of storytelling is so captivating and, and interesting and you know I've got a very short attention span and I quite <laughs> find it quite difficult like most people who work in media to concentrate on anything mm. but I was gripped the whole way through and it was really really great so yeah please do go and uh, download it I should say as well Willow and Claude is also on Water Bear oh so I did not know that Water Bear everywhere let's talk about your amazing book How Veganism Can Save Us it's coming. A handy copy here. Hooray. How Veganism Can Save Us, Survive the Modern World. This book details the devastating impact animal agriculture has on the environment and takes a unique look at how it also affects our personal well-being and mental health. Tell me about what inspired you to create this um, and how this book is different from other books out there of a similar ilk. 
how veganism can save us is supposed to be a really entry-level and accessible look into veganism. It's also really designed for people who are interested in social justice more broadly, but who haven't necessarily expanded their circle of compassion to include other animals or who haven't seen how veganism relates to it. You know, so the book looks at how issues around feminism, racism, all of these things intersect with veganism and how we eat and how we get dressed. So it's broken into a section on the planet, on people, on animals, and then at the end about how they all come together. So I think it's different in that there are some books that are more kind of specific to one part of it rather than, again, looking at the more collective liberation approach, which I think is more likely to you know, bring more people into it and see that it really is we can't have social justice if we don't have veganism as a part of it. And it really looks at that and it breaks it down to a point that's not totally overwhelming. There's nice little design things. It's This is very cool. As I was saying earlier, as a designer myself, I love the way it looks. There's some very cool graphics and it's quite um, quite jazzy. Quite jazzy. <laughs> love, the, love the colours and stuff as well. Um, I think that's the challenge with uh, adopting a new, new lifestyle for people. It's very intimidating for most people who've been born and grown up in a carnistic culture where mm. eating animals is normal natural and necessary uh, they've been indoctrinated or culturally conditioned to believe that and it's the same with you know wearing animal products as well we've been culturally conditioned that this is just the way it is it will always be this way right shout out uh, to melanie joy there she's been uh, an incredible inspiration to me my whole you know vegan career if you could call it that she her work on effective vegan advocacy and effective communication uh, i really encourage you to check out her books on any ethical bookstore that you can it's so powerful and speaking of that actually where can we get your book i don't let's not forget that the best place to get it online is booktopia, booktopia. it's also if you're in the uk in the kind of standard stores mm -hmm. like blackwells yeah waterstone that kind of thing but booktopia is a really good it's australian mm -hmm. company that does nicer things yep, and it's also it. cheaper on there or go to your local library and request they get a copy yes um uh, and um and go and sit in the library with a nice cup of tea and yes. uh, enjoy it and then give it back and allow somebody else to enjoy it yes <laughs> and i didn't know in australia at least authors do make money when people borrow books in libraries wow. i always thought like oh i want to support the author but i also libraries are great so you can do both mm, that's amazing i love libraries we've got one near us and i always drive past it or walk past it and think i must go in there and like you know spend some time on my own <laughs> away from social media but um i haven't quite made that happen so maybe this is a sign <laughs> i yeah. need to do it so let's go back to you know what are the core values of your book but also your life philosophy and mine too is about how do we um, empower people there's so much to do, there's so much we can do, but like what is the very, in your opinion, what's the sort of heart of empowerment of others? Like how do we give people the courage to be able to make changes? It's really important, especially if people are just starting out, getting involved in trying to create a better world, to not feel like so tiny in comparison to this huge problem. Everything that we do intentionally to make the world better is important. And it's really easy to build on that. I think I can be a good example for people who feel like they can't do things. Like I'm only 23 and I have hopefully done things that have made the world a little bit better. And I think that people often underestimate the capacity they have to make change. 
I think that if we, especially if we're supportive of each other and have that more communal mindset, we can do things much bigger than we expect. I think you just have to get to it. Mm, yeah, absolutely. No matter how small you are, how small you feel, you can make a big difference. It may seem cliche, but you know anything is possible when you have the courage and determination to actually stand up. Cliches exist for a reason. Absolutely. <laughs> I think, I, I, you know, I love a cliche. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, it's the only way you can really think about how you can find your way out of what feels like an impossible situation is to hold on to the words and support of others. One of my favorite, you could say cliches, is that the word encouragement has the word courage in it. So it exists within encouragement. And when you give encouragement to others, when you give them the tools to feel like that they can make things possible, you are literally giving them courage and giving them the support they need because for most people, we're not taught that we can. We're taught that you need the support of others, that you'll never be something because, you know, we live in this really competitive world and, you know, you'll never be anything. I, when I first came to England, I was a little 18-year-old from Af middle of nowhere in Africa and I was told it's too competitive, you'll never be anyone. Don't bother going to England. It's um, it's a scary place. And I was often filled with a lot of fear about coming to this country. Um, I had £200 in my pocket, a couple of photos, a backpack, you know, 24 years later. Mm. Things are very different. And I only was able to achieve that because I had supportive people around me telling me, you can do it. My mother, um, particularly, shout out to my mom, V. <laughs> she is an angel. She has always been there every step of the way, pushing me and encouraging me through everything that I've done. And we really need to cherish those people around us because it's difficult being an activist and a campaigner and someone who's mm. a little bit different. You know, we really need to nourish and, and nurture those relationships, whether they are, you know, someone you live with or on the other side of the world. Speaking of people on the other side of the world, there's some amazing people in your space of ethical fashion. I'd love to hear if you, some of the names of the people that, that inspire you in the work that you do. Other people who are working in a similar sort of space that our listeners uh, should definitely follow and check out. Like designers, activists, Designers, activists, campaigners in, in fashion and ethical fashion and sustainable fashion. There's, there's quite a few. In fashion, start with a designer. I really love Kaf, who is the designer behind Sans Beast. And I really respect her because she was previously working for a brand that like exclusively sells leather goods. And that's what she was focusing on. And now she is creating the total alternative to that using recycled vegan leather materials, ethical sourcing, all of that kind of thing. And I love examples of people, you know, learning something and then shifting their practice. Mm. I think it's a really nice thing and a nice thing to support. So I really like that. Collective Fashion Justice works with a bunch of different organisations that have so many good people behind them. We work with different animal rights organisations as well as, you know, a lot of the organisations we work with, we actually don't fully see eye to eye with. Like Fashion Revolution is one that I'm really glad to have a good relationship with, but they, up until they've been really supportive of Slay, they don't really talk about animals. I like building those relationships because that's how we make the community stronger and make animals more of a broad issue. It's funny, yeah, that some of the people I really respect the work of are not 100% eye to eye with me yet. But it's important to be able to sit down and have adult conversations with people and disagree politely, right? And I think that's one of the, again, going back to Melanie Joy's work, mm. is that that's severely lacking, specifically in online spaces where people cannot disagree without blocking each other. It just drives yeah. me crazy. Like, why can we not have a discussion? You can disagree with me, 
maybe you can get a little bit emotional maybe maybe i can too but maybe at the end of the day we can end the conversation and agree to disagree because i think that everyone has a different way of communicating or a different idea of how things should be done but we should still mm. be able to talk to each other and i think that's what social media has taken away from us is the ability to, for people to have reasonable dialogue um, and discussion because we do need to stick together as a an activist campaigner community mm. there's a lot to change those pillars have got a lot of chipping to do <laughs> we're going to bring down that yeah. monolith yeah because you can spend a lot of time you know as i often say throwing rocks at the at the head of the edifice right of this uh, monstrosity that is animal agriculture or the you know the sort of use of animals in, in uh, fashion but if we all stick together and we all work together we can create this sort of groundswell that really can pack a mighty punch mm. on these um on these industries so and there are people yeah. who you know aren't working in the fashion space so much at all but their work is hugely beneficial to creating a total ethics fashion industry like you know in america there's the agricultural fairness alliance and they basically try to raise money to hire lobbyists to work for animals in government to go up against the huge amount of lobbyists and lobbying that animal agricultural industries have that has nothing to do with fashion in terms of the messaging of the organization or anything but at the same time fur industry lobbying exotic skins leather all of that they're very involved so i think our communities are much bigger than we realize sometimes before i let you go i always yes. like to ask my guests this one final question if yes. you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig <laughs> um you're not going to eat the pig obviously if you're vegan uh and you i could give you one vegan dish one music artist or album and one book oh, what would you take how with would you? i sustain myself and this pig together you and your pig friend food I'd probably pick something really not sensible for surviving. Maybe potatoes. No, that's ridiculous because then I'd have to cook them. I you take that back. You've got a, you've got a, you've I'm got not going to make a fire okay. every day. <laughs> Bananas. Amazing. I don't even like them that much. I'm just being very logical. And then music. I would probably listen to this album by this artist called Porches. Porches. Yeah. I just listen to it constantly, so I think that wouldn't change if I was on an island. Mm. What book would you take with you? Book that I would take with me. What's inspired you over the years? Or not. Yes, it could be, could, could no, be a, it could book on horror. Lots of, <laughs> <laughs> Some no, like horror stories. Hor There's enough horror in the world. True, true. I would say for book, I would bring Sapiens mm, by Yuval Noah Harari. He's um, vegan, isn't he? He is. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that he became vegan by writing that book. Oh. Like he learned so much about it. It's was like, oh, mm. that'll do it. You could get lost in that book and forget that you're on an island for a little bit. Mm. Love it. Ms. Emma Hackinson, thank you so much for joining us on the PBM podcast. It's been a pleasure to hear a bit of your story and some of your ideas and thoughts on ethical and sustainable fashion and everything else. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Thanks for joining us, everyone. This has been the PBN Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Locke, and we'll be back next time with more veganism, food, fashion, animals, and everything in between. <laughs>